0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, but then again, I don't ever recall a time when it was the exact opposite. What I do know is that I'm always amazed by you all, my listeners, whom have been so supportive of me, regardless of whether it's talking about Paul Revere's ride, Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse, I Am Murdered. George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and The Killing That Shocked a New Nation. I could go on with other book titles I have discussed with you all since June of last year, but the bottom line is you all have been with me 100% through, and I cannot say to you all how much it has meant to me. But you know what? There's still so much more work left to be done, so don't see this as a farewell. See this as just a great reminder to you all who have made this happen for me in particular. But here we are discussing, once again, Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher. And in this uh, podcast session, or episode, I should say, (laughs) session, episode, they kind of could be the two same things. But we're going to start a two-part series with uh, part one uh, for this podcast. It's titled The Battle, A Provincial Protest Becomes a World War. Now, when I think of world wars, I think of World War I and II, but of course, here we are with our time machine in the 18th century. It could be fair to say that the the, um, conflict with England is like a world war. After all, England is the mightiest empire in the world, and her territory holdings are not confined to just colonial America and the 13 colonies. England has... um, a lot of uh, domain or influence west of the Appalachian Mountains in what we know as the Northwest uh, Territory, being the five states that we now know as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. England also has territory as far west as the Pacific Ocean in what we now know as the state of Oregon. So England's uh, domain is not confined to just the eastern seaboard of colonial America. England is also very um, influential, or let alone perhaps powerful is a better word to say, in the Caribbean as well. So she has truly flexed her forces. However, for colonial America, most notably Massachusetts, this flexing of forces without limits is going to come to an end. And the only way it can come to an end is by going head to toe on battlefield. Now, from the last podcast, we talked about the first shots fired at Lexington. But what will ensue at Concord later on, later on, during the day of April nineteenth, seventeen seventy-five, will tell an entirely different story. You know, Lexington was one o one. But I believe that Concord has all the potential to be beyond 101. So, our first leadoff question for this podcast episode for part one of the battle of provincial protests becoming a world war is the following Did every Minuteman whom fought against British regulars fight his own private war? and what i mean by private war is an individual war in other words i john smith am taking my hostilities out on the king's army no this was not a, a situation where every minuteman was fighting the british against the british regulars per his own private war no the fighting that which took place on april 19 1775 most notably after lexington pertain to a series of controlled, regulated engagements where those whom fought at Concord concentrated their efforts into something larger, being formal military units. So, you know, we often think of militia as forces that come and go as they please. We tend to think of militiamen as undisciplined men, men whom are seeking personal gratification. They have the I-me-myself mentality. Well, it turns out in Massachusetts, the militiamen are different. The militiamen don't operate under I-me-myself. They don't operate under glorification, but their militiamen philosophy is one that should uh, be something bigger, and that is working together as one large cohesive unit, or should I say multiple cohesive units that all share the same identity, the the same um, philosophy, and the same end result. Of course, as the American Revolution will expand in the years to come, other colonies, militias, while depending on where you are from, say, Pennsylvania or New Jersey, your militia men may not have the same values as Massachusetts. But in Massachusetts at this time, the fighting that takes place after Lexington is one of uh, controlled, regulated engagements where those whom are fighting at Concord are concentrating their efforts into being that of something greater as military units. This could be the first signs of an evolution where we will become something that could be the equivalent of a National Guard or something that could be the equivalent of the first, perhaps the first true army that colonial America has seen. Now for years Americans have tended to focus more on individual effort versus the greater common effort. You know, when we tend to think of Lexington and Concord, we just tend to think of, you know, the individuals that showed up at Lexington. And we have this assumption that, okay, the militiamen who showed up were the ones that actually fired the shots heard around the world. Well, it turns out that wasn't the case. And when I was on the air with you all last, while it's still not 100% definitive to this day, But I think it's fair to say that many historians believe that um, a bystander who who must have not been too far away from from the um, from the core of the Lexington Green area where the engagement ensued could have fired the first shot from a secure place where he would not have been left um, exposed. I believe that to be true now when i say greater effort folks what i mean by that is a large network after all didn't i say earlier about like formal military units shouldn't that be an example of a large network absolutely i also when i also think of large networks how about uh the couriers or i should say the dispatch riders whom had crisscrossed from all directions just before April 19th and and into the wee hours of the early more of the early morning of the 19th to um, advise people throughout the towns throughout the outlying towns that is outside of Boston that hey the regulars are coming okay the regulars are coming so what should that mean? okay I need to do what's necessary to take a stand Should I be confronted by a group of regulars I should also go about. You know warning my fellow townspeople who live nearby of of how to go about preparing the best form of defense mechanisms should we be um encroached upon the individual effort when I think of an individual effort, I tend to think of what people had uh glorified not in the bad sense but had glorified in this grand image that Paul Revere went on this phenomenal um, ride into the midnight hours of April 19th and that he just went from town to town without being caught and just saying left and right that the British are coming. No, that's not how it all happened. I think by now we should all know that's not how it happened. And that's a good thing because, uh, while yes, we want to believe that individuals themselves did all the work. Let's face it, folks, one man alone could not have <clears throat> ridden 30 miles in one direction one night, then 30 miles south in the next, or 20 miles to the west. That's just not possible. But the reason why they've, they glorified this for so long was because of who Paul Revere was in terms of his name. Of course when we think of William Dawes and Dr. Samuel Prescott they may not have the same notification or not notification the same um, recognition as Paul Revere but they too had a significant story to tell that night they weren't captured like Paul Revere was but somehow Paul Revere had God on his side to where the British had no other choice but to release him so That's why, folks, it's so important to focus more on the greater effort versus the individual effort. The greater effort, to me, is us, we, ourselves. The individual effort, while, yes, I, me, myself, can be seen as negative, it's not always a bad thing, but there's more to why April 19, 1775 happened on the battlefield than just Paul Revere's Ride. He was one of many dispatchers and couriers that we should all know by now whom went above and beyond the call of duty to warn the townspeople from all directions, north, south, west, and east. If it weren't for those people, maybe the British would have achieved their objectives a lot sooner. And perhaps, who knows what would have happened. We don't know. Because in the end, our couriers, our dispatch riders, the people were the ones that mobilized from bottom to top. Now, let's get back to our primary focus here. Whom awakened Concord's town fathers in the early morning hours of April 19th, 1775? I'll give you three choices. Was it Paul Revere? Was it Samuel Adams, or was it Dr. Samuel Prescott? The answer is the following, Dr. Samuel Prescott. Remember folks, Samuel Adams and John Hancock have moved to uh, what we might say today is an undisclosed location. Um, Thanks to Paul Revere's efforts, they are now in a much uh, safer area where they are immune from being uh, caught by uh, British forces. But it's uh, Dr. Samuel Prescott who um, awakens the Town Fathers, or Concord's Town Fathers, in the early morning hours of April 19th. Now, Concord's Town Fathers, or I should say their head leaders, through advice and consent from William Emerson, who is their minister, the Town Fathers immediately go about gathering militiamen, to dispatching a handful of horse riders into Lexington where they could confirm the alarm's accuracy. So, in other words, the people in Concord don't know what just happened earlier in the morning at Lexington. You know, Now, Lexington and Concord aren't that far apart from each other, but we've got to also remember we don't have breaking news alert stations. So, going by horse into Lexington is going to be the only way that someone can get the real truth. In other words, they can get their facts straight. So, okay, once you've got the news from Lexington, you're gonna go back to Concord. So the men of so the next thing we know is once the news has been confirmed, men of military age in Concord convened at the Wright Tavern. And let me just let you all know that the right Tavern is not spelled like R-I-G-H-T, like taking a right turn on the road. (laughs) It's spelled W-R-I-G-H-T. Now, you know, it's interesting enough, each city or town obviously has, you know, a tavern or two, but it might be fair to say that the right Tavern in Concord is where everybody comes together when it comes to essential, you know, meetings, especially in this case with the preparing uh, for the inevitable and how to go about uh, defending uh, the town of Concord. Well, everyone agreed that Concord must defend itself. So, the younger-aged men of the minute companies chose to march eastward and confront British regulars outside of town. On the other hand, middle-aged men or I should say middle-aged militiamen, chose to stay put and fight and conquered. Was there a clear consensus on what to do and what not to do? Believe it or not, folks, there wasn't a clear consensus, but it turned out that perhaps there was a good reason for why a clear consensus was not reached. All of the men, regardless of their age, did agree that all options needed to be considered. So, hey, if one plan doesn't work out, you can have another plan that will follow in its place as backup. In other words, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Were Concord's elder militia members right about choosing to stay put in town? Yes. How so? Well, the younger militiamen weren't being naive. I'll I'll tell you that much right now. But this is a situation where you need to learn right away before it's too late. The younger militiamen, their forces, had spotted an advancing British force about a mile east of town center. Here's the thing. It's one thing to spot an advancing British force. But let me ask you all this. Were these younger militiamen forces, were they... Evenly numbered as the advancing British force, or were they outnumbered? The answer is outnumbered. So, if you were outnumbered, wouldn't you have enough smarts to pull back into town? I would think so, because if you didn't, then for one, you're playing with fire, and two, if an ambush comes along, a surprise attack, to where these younger militiamen forces are routed, say some are killed or captured, Okay, what do the British forces do? They can go into the heart of Concord, and then uh, militia forces there are short on numbers to defend the city. So, it is fair to say that the younger militiamen made the right decision by pulling back and going straight into town. Where did uh, the older men of militia companies and alarm lists assemble for their defense preparations? They took a position or what we call a place on a high hill above the meeting house. Now, we've got to remember this, folks, that the landscape in the 18th century, regardless of where anyone lived, whether it was in Virginia, Massachusetts, or South Carolina, the landscape back then was not the same landscape as we know today. I can just give you a brief example, not to get off track, but I'll just give you the, uh, a good 101 example. Uh, whenever, uh, whenever my wife and I, in years past, when we would go to um, Hilton Head, South Carolina, on the way down Interstate 95, there is a lake in South Carolina called Lake Marion, named after uh, Francis Marion. And those of you who are with me, and um, John Aller's the Swamp Fox, and how Francis Marion saved the American Revolution, well, the lake is named in his honor, but what people don't know is that, for one, that lake was, is a man-made lake that was built right after World War II came to an end, and lastly, where Lake Marion stands, there used to be homes, like 18th century homes or 19th century plantations, uh, basically towns and villages at best. And all of those um, homes that were left standing were flooded to the point where they disintegrated to the very, very, very deepest of levels below the lake's surface. So just because you see a body of water, folks, it doesn't mean that there are, it doesn't mean that it's just water. It doesn't mean that the lake itself has been there since prehistoric times. So, just remember, wherever you travel sometimes, just remember that whatever landscape you see now was not the same landscape that was in existence 200 years ago. So, yes, the um, older men of militia companies and alarm lists, as I said, assembled their defense preparations around a position on a high hill above the meeting house, and the high hill itself was a solid position as it provided long-range views to the east. What could have been, you know, Concord, folks, is um, Lexington and Concord are west of Boston. But at this time, people in Concord could see Boston 20 miles away per this high hill um, position ground, which I think is very remarkable. Now, who is uh, James Barrett? I didn't know about James Barrett until I read this book. As a matter of fact, I read this book uh, last year. And I, I think you all should—you all would be blown away, but this book was actually um, of Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher. was written back in 1995. But even after a quarter of a century, it still is relevant. You know, I haven't really read many books on Paul Revere. This is the only one but I would say it is significantly important to read if you really want to get the uh, whole nine yards story behind his ride, or I should say his midnight ride, and, and as we all know, know now that it was more than just a one-man effort show. But um, as for James Barrett, I didn't know anything about him until I read this book. He is a native of Concord, And going into 1775, he is 64 years of age. He is the colonel of the Middlesex Regiment. Middlesex is outside of Boston. As the sound of British drums became steadier, Colonel Barrett took his outnumbered militia forces by retreating northward to Puncatessit Hill. If any of you all were wondering, how, how do you spell Puncatessit? That's P U N K A T A S S E T. That's a tongue twister all right. <laughs> That's close to trying to pronounce Punxsutawney in Pennsylvania where they do um the groundhog um, event every uh, February to determine whether or not the groundhog sees a shadow or not and whether or not we have six whether or not winter will last longer or there will be an early spring. So anyways, yes, there was Punkatasset Hill. Which was a mile from the town center. So remember, folks, we've got to realize here that for, that our forces are not just standing in one place. We're not twirling our thumbs, saying, "Okay, when are the British going to come?" No, you got to move. Uh, if you if you know you're outnumbered, you need to fall back. Or if you see something coming, try to uh, disperse your men to where you don't put all your numbers in one uh, position. In other words, don't put everyone in the center. Keep some, some of your men in the center, but split the others in one direction, like to the left and then others to the right. So this way, if one side could be potentially ambushed, hopefully the other forces, per the other directions, will be able to counterattack by diffusing the situation. We remember uh, Colonel Francis Smith on the British side. You know, he was the one that pretty much had to um, rescue the um, the debacle at Lexington. Uh, even though, yes, the British may have killed seven of our soldiers and took one prisoner. I think that's how it was. Yes, Colonel uh, Francis Smith did save the day for the British by getting them back in line, especially knowing that they did not have any proper orders from above per their commanders, um, to give the um, troops the, the okay to fire. But Colonel Francis Smith will make his presence known in Concord. He went about going above and beyond and enforcing General Gage's orders to ensure that the people of Concord would be treated properly, along with people's private property being protected. You know, that's nice that uh, Colonel Francis Smith is willing to... Um, respect people's private property. But on the other hand, you know, you can, you know, issue all these, you know, proclamations. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that the other side's going to play nice. I would say by now that, hey, after what's happened at Lexington, the militiamen have have a score to settle. You know, they're not intimidated. Yes, they may have lost eight of their own men and a handful wounded, but they're not going to go away without a fight. Remember, folks, Lexington was 101. I have a strong gut feeling that Concord will be beyond 101. How far? I can't tell you because if I did, I'd probably spoil the fun, or the man. Um, I, mean, I don't say I don't, I don't think fun's the right word, but I would be spoiling the um, the answers. British regulars under General Gage's orders went about securing the south and north bridges to searching the village, destroying all materials of war. That means, uh, you know, pistols or um, rifles or muskets, destroying anything that would be of uh, surprise to the enemy that could uh, throw them for a um, huge curveball. And a handful of companies went about marching two miles beyond North Bridge where Colonel Barrett's home supposedly had an abundance of munitions. You know, it's one thing to suspect that someone has an abundance of munitions, but hey, aren't we forgetting something folks? Why should the British suspect that someone has an abundance of munitions when they don't even have probable cause on their end? In other words, remember folks, Our U.S. Constitution protects us from—we have the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. In other words, if you suspect something going on that's suspicious and illegal, you have to have probable cause to prove that the unlawful act is taking place. But remember, in 1775, British soldiers don't care about um, Americans' rights— What they care about is just making our lives miserable, and that's why the people of Massachusetts have had it. When did Paul Revere issue his first warning to the people of Concord? Now I know all of us for years thought that everyone got warned before and after midnight of April 19th, 1775. Well, I think by now we ought to know that perhaps it's safe to say that people may have, that many people in general throughout the greater um, countryside of Massachusetts could have been warned, say, a week before April 19th. But I'll throw out a couple of choices for you all. Choice one is April 15th. Choice two, April 7th. Choice three, April 11th. You know, I picked odd numbers, folks. Do you think that's a good thing? Well, there's nothing wrong with an even number, but but here's the answer. April 7th. Okay, seven may be an odd number, but when you think about it, April 7th, and then you have April 19th, that's 12 days. 12 is an even number. So that would have given the people of Concord... One week and five days to prepare. Not just to prepare how to go about taking up arms against the mother country, but to go about moving military supplies to outlying towns. Well, what would have been some of the nearest outlying towns? How about Sudbury and Stow? So how about that, folks? April 7th is an odd day, because seven is odd. Twelve days later, on the 19th, The inevitable is coming. They're ready. But think about that. Between April 7th and just before April 19th, you've got 12 days. And those 12 days didn't go to waste, folks. It helps to uh, receive warnings early, because the earlier you get them, the better prepared you are. Not just for that exact moment, but for long term. To the north, around Puncatusset Hill, militia forces were gathering in strength. After meeting as a whole, they agreed to march a 1,000 yards south from Pongatesset to their gathering field being a flat hilltop roughly 300 yards northwest of North Bridge. As militia forces advanced, British regulars retreated downward towards the North Bridge. Both forces folks are now just a few hundred yards apart from one another. Now, that must have been a sight to have seen. Except this time around, folks, is it safe to say that the overall number of forces at conquered are greater than at Lexington? Absolutely. But I also said from the previous podcast that if you put all of your numbers in one place, then how is the next um, spot where the British want to go going to be protected by the opposition. That's why you've got to have people elsewhere to protect, not only the people, but the town in general, so that, when, so that if, a, if a conflict ensues, there, for one, there's going to be a battle, and two, the enemy, being the British, will be prevented in every way possible from taking over the whole town to where bystanders get um, shot, to where bystanders, bystanders could become prisoners, to basically um, a town being annihilated, to where sadly it could become a ghost town if it weren't uh, protected by its people. Were the actions at uh, Concord similar to what Captain John Parker instructed for his militia forces at Lexington? Yes. Instructions at Concord were exact same, like Lexington, in that the militia were not to fire first. There's probably some good truth to that. You know, yes, if you're going to fire at the enemy, you better be prepared to um, have a solid defensive game plan on how to respond when you get fired upon. Here's a, a good question. Were British regulars blown away by how many militiamen, or by how militiamen, rather, I should say, were marching downward towards them? Yes. For one, the regulars had assumed most militiamen didn't know how to march when it came doing so by formal procession, but they were also amazed by how well-disciplined militia forces had become. So, the British regulars, folks, are getting a... um, You could say a rude awakening but they are getting a shock they are coming to realize now that what was confronting them wasn't rabble you know in other words these militia troops are not you know yes they might be farmers but they're not but they are far more educated than they would seem to appear they may not have top-of-the-line clothing but hey They know how to um, prepare their muskets. They know how to clean them. They know how to take aim and fire. They are veterans of past wars, most notably the French and Indian War. They're no stranger to war, except this go-around, whereas the past four conflicts involving uh, people from Massachusetts, they were on the side of England. This time around, history has seen a huge 360 reversal So, yes, the British regulars are realizing that what was confronting them was not rabble, but instead an army whom wasn't afraid to go head to toe with the mightiest military empire in the world. While the militia were marching at ease, were the British facing any struggles from within? Yes. Yes. British soldiers were caught up in a great web of confusion. Two companies went back across the North Bridge only to collide with a third company. Lieutenant Sutherland of the 38th Regiment ordered light infantry from another unit to move out as flankers. But Sutherland was not their officer and only three men obeyed his orders. Well, you know, it's one thing for an officer to give orders, but who's not to say that those below that officer whom are not directly tied to him are going to follow those commands? I thought that regardless of who your commander was or if the commander wasn't your commander in the British Army, I thought you would always do as you were told. Well, I hate to say this, folks. Well, maybe it's a good thing but I think it's fair to say that even the British Army has its share of conflict. And that share of conflict isn't just confined to uh, the high-ranking officers, but it is, um, But the conflict itself is among the uh, regulars whom are, not, whom are not following orders. I mean, it was bad enough that um, that as British troops were marching towards Lexington that they did not know where their ultimate destination mission was until uh, Colonel Francis Smith came along and saved the day after the um, unfortunate shooting debacle at Lexington Green. So, let's just be reminded of the fact that even the mightiest military empire in the world is not 100% perfect. You know, no military empire is 100% perfect, but given that the British are this huge elephant... Even the elephant has its limits. You know, the elephant has overstretched its empire to the point where the mosquitoes are are um, have had it. They are the ones coming in all different directions to wreak havoc on the elephant. And I think it's fair to say that the mosquito population, being that of the militia, will really show its effect when shots. After shots are fired at Concord, so let's uh, keep an, keep at it, folks. Senior British C- Captain Walter Laurie witnessed the unexpected by watching one of his own regulars fire without proper command. Now that, to me, would be a cardinal sin right there to fire without proper command. Only to have other troops fire shots at the same time. Another um, bad mishap. Shots fired went over the heads of the militia. Most of the militiamen were fine. Sadly, some of those American uh, soldiers weren't lucky. What I'm going to share with you all next might sound a little graphic, but I think it's also a reminder that war is not a game. And that this was not a situation where it involved cowboys and Indians from like the Western, you know, movies from the 50s and 60s involving, say, um, actor John Wayne. Captain Isaac Davis, American uh, militia captain, rather, I should say, he was killed right away by a ball that pierced his heart. If that was bad enough, folks, this wound was made worse by the fact that blood made its way to other men beside him. That's how lethal the ball itself when fired from a musket or a rifle, what it can do to uh, someone on the opposition side. Just because a bullet lands into your body, it doesn't mean it goes in one place and stays there. It's not like a dart. Bullets have a mind of their own, you know, they can travel in a person's body at odd angles and mess up not just one organ but other parts of your body to where it's only a matter of minutes before you could ultimately succumb to your death or a matter of minutes between getting somewhere where someone can, you know, operate on you so that you can live. When I uh, learned about Captain Isaac Davis's death, it kind of reminded me in some ways of how President uh, John F. Kennedy was shot. And how do I say that? Well, real brief, when President Kennedy was shot in the head, the bullet wound that exited out from the back of his head as uh, witnesses who saw it happen live in person on November 22, 1963, a couple of those witnesses said that his head wound from the back was like the size of a baseball. And uh, one officer who was riding um, behind the presidential motorcade that President Kennedy was riding in had um, had blood come into his helmet. He said it was like grapefruit. It was that. Um, it was that. Um, scary it was that um, horrifying so we just need to keep be reminded of the fact that when someone got shot even in the American Revolution it was no it was no what do you call it it was no bullet shot that was like the equivalent of a John Wayne cowboy gun despite some of the losses while marching did American militiamen remain uh, disciplined as they got ever so closer to the enemy I would think so. After all, um, after all, if you've got that close to the enemy, you know there's no uh, turning back. So, as militia forces got to around fifty yards from the north bridge, Major John Buttrick of Concord shouted the following, and this is in quotes, so listen carefully. Fire! Fellow soldiers, for God's sake, fire! Now, if that's not a powerful command, I don't know what is. But the results proved to be in favor of the militiamen as their muskets fired upon enemy with precise accuracy. Militia forces were instructed to fire low. Why fire low? I know the answer to this. Most of you probably remember watching um, a movie that came out 21 years ago uh, with Mel Gibson and the late Heath Ledger called The Patriot. Those of you who remember watching that movie, it was a wonderful movie, but I will admit, and even um, reenactors at Williamsburg have told this to me, and I do have to agree with what they have said, while some of that movie is um, accurate, there are other... um, portions or segments of that movie where um, the historians or let alone maybe Hollywood didn't get it all right. But I'm not here to talk about that all that. There was a scene in the movie after uh, one of Mel Gibson's sons was shot by um, the man whom portrayed Colonel Bannister Tarleton in um, South Carolina. Mel um, Mel Gibson and two of his other sons go into the woods to... Um, to uh, hunt down their um, other su- to hunt down their other family member being the late Heath Ledger who was uh, captured by British forces. The advantage that Mel Gibson and his sons have is that they know um, they know the uh, woods very well, the backcountry woods. But what Mel Gibson taught his boys about hunting, or let alone firing a musket or rifle was the following: to aim small, miss small. Okay, what would that mean by aiming small and missing small? For one, don't become completely visible to the enemy. In other words, if you make yourself visible to the enemy, they'll notice you right away. That is, if, they are vi- if, if their visibility is sharp enough, they'll notice you right away to where they might be the ones to fire upon you before you can even load your rifle on them. So by not becoming visible, you know, you are hiding, you're disguising yourself in not just in the woods, but perhaps behind a tree to where you were only maneuvering part of yourself past the tree. You've got your rifle loaded and cocked, ready to go. And as you see the target, you fire. And in the case with Mel Gibson and his two sons, they... um, they led what was called a guerrilla attack. In other words, it was irregular-style warfare that resulted in killing 20 of the king's soldiers. And, of course, their son, their other family member, being the late Heath Ledger, was uh, saved. But by aiming small, they were able to, um, for the most part of it, they were able to remain um, undetected. However, of course, Mel Gibson did come out towards the end when most of the soldiers had been shot now for missing small what that means is okay if you didn't hit your object or your target 100 percent you still hit part of the object so let's say for example i'm out in the woods and i'm part of a guerrilla attack and i see a soldier i turn myself to a certain degree where I'm not completely visible, but I fire, I don't hit the target to where the uh, enemy soldier has fallen to the ground, but I, but I hit say part of his button, that is his button the, his button coat, in other words the um, bullet hits through his coat, and it it ricochets off of the uh, button. The bottom line is I've hit my target partially, but I still have another. Um, You know, some people would say, I still have another day, or I might have another round left in me that would prevent me from being um, caught by surprise. So aim small, miss small, basically is to not be completely visible to the enemy, but by missing small, you've hit part of an object, but by hitting part of an object, you still have um, the opportunity to achieve your mission on the next uh, fire, British officers, rather, I should say this, how many British officers at the North Bridge were hit by the first American wave of fire? Well, I'll tell you this much. The number was there were eight British officers at the North Bridge. I'll give you some choices. Choice one was three. Choice two was would be none. Choice three, four. Four out of eight British officers at the North Bridge, folks, were hit by the first American wave of fire. That's 50%. Three British privates were killed with nine men wounded, with four officers shot. And think about this, folks, with four officers shot, the greater the confusion amongst British soldiers In other words, the greater the confusion amongst these soldiers occurred to where they began running for their lives. Here they were so convinced that we didn't have what it took to go head to toe with them. Now they're the ones on the run. Here's a question to think about. Did the militiamen know what to do in the aftermath of their victory? Well, it's bad enough that the British soldiers are beginning to run for their lives, but... um, as for the militiamen, yes, I could see how they would be thoroughly excited that they have uh, just done the impossible. Now this battle isn't over just yet, but I see it as a skirmish that um, a, temp- a skirmish that is a a minor victory, but the bigger battle is still left is still yet left to be determined. However, order and discipline began falling apart, to where some militiamen returned to their homes. And secondly, the American dead were being gathered and taken to Major Buttrick's home. So you have some militiamen who have said, okay, I've seen all that I need to see today. I've done my part, which is good. But at the same time, by leaving now, it's fair to say that you have um, left some of your own other people behind to where they might have to be picking up more of the burden should fighting ensue, should more fighting ensue. The good news, folks, is that New England officers were able to regain control of their scattered forces, whereas the British forces under Colonel Francis Smith's command took longer. Given the grim realities of what had taken place earlier at North Bridge, what had already just begun, including what else that would ensue, was no longer an isolated skirmish. So yes, you've got three privates killed Nine men wounded, four out of eight officers are also have also been shot. I think if you're on the British side, no, this is no ordinary skirmish. This isn't um, some little uh, battle where okay, after the end of the, after this, you know, they the Americans are just going to go back and pretend as though the worst is behind them or that fighting is just going to stop. No, no this is what we call perhaps the lightning round but we think it's fair to say we could eventually see some bigger lightning rounds or something that goes beyond the lightning round our last question for this uh, podcast session for tonight to end part one of the battle of provincial uh, protests becoming a world war this is a very personal one here folks What did four companies of British light infantry come upon as they crossed over the North Bridge en route to Concord? They came upon a dying regular whom had been beaten to death with a hatchet by an unknown American. The regulars... It turns out, folks, that a handful of British regulars actually did have sympathy for the Americans, but yet they were forced into fighting for the king's army for gosh knows how many reasons why, but it was their duty to serve king and country. But in the aftermath of seeing one of their own be so uh, gravely tortured by an unknown American, their attitudes toward Americans became even grimmer. For one, uh, they actually began to believe that Americans were murdering prisoners to torturing the wounded. This proved to be false. but this isolated atrocity by itself changed to one amongst British changed um, changed British soldiers uh, attitudes to where hatred on both sides would reach new levels before April 19th, 1775, would come to a complete day's end. So, you know, it's one thing, you know, we know about that old saying, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, you hurt me, I hurt you. I hate to say this, folks, but I think it's fair to say that we could start seeing some of this mentality now on the battlefield. It's not, okay, I just shot you, and I'm going to go on to the next uh, target. We forget, you know, that sometimes when we learn why British soldiers say may have bayoneted an Amer an American, it wasn't to just finish him off. It was a it was a really a way of saying, hey, it's not so much that I'm better than you, I'm a part of the mightiest empire in the world, and I'm still viewing viewing you, the American, as rabble or as a peasant with pitch with a pitchfork. And we do know that as the American Revolution expanded, that there were many instances where um, where men on the American side were uh, massacred brutally, all in the name of um, self-interests on the British side. Not to get too far ahead of the game, but the most infamous one that occurred was in 1781 at the, uh, or 1780 rather, at the uh, Waxhaws in the Carolinas, where... Um, American Captain Abraham Buford waved a flag of truce, but somehow one of his own men accidentally fired onto Colonel Bannistray Tarleton's um, dragoon forces to where roughly a hundred of uh, Abraham Buford's men were massacred with bayonets. And in the aftermath of that battle, the rally cry would evolve for other southern um, battles in the Southern uh, conflict of the American Revolution, the rally cry was, remember the wax haws. So, atrocities alone, folks, are not confined to just one part of this uh, conflict. They are everywhere. I mean, it's bad enough if, if a man got tarred and feathered, all because he was either a loyalist or a patriot. But when actual warfare is fought, an isolated atrocity can change one forces um, attitude towards the other well we've covered a lot of ground tonight and i look forward to being back on the air again next and when i am on the air next we will discuss part two of the battle a provincial protest becomes a world war thank you again to all of my fellow 101 podcast listeners out there thank you for your continuous support and if you know of anyone who wants to podcast, you just tell them to come to Anchor. It's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you again, stay safe, and take care for now.